It really seems as though all of Adventism is a reaction to Satan, from their story of origins all the way to the end when he bears away the sins of the world. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, Nikki, we are on fundamental belief number 24, Christ's Ministry in the Heavenly Sanctuary. This title is, again, a carefully crafted code. It's written to sound like something Christians would say, after all, who could argue that Christ is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary, as Hebrews explains. But as I said, it's code, and this time, it's code for their only unique doctrine. The real title for this chapter is The Investigative Judgment. When I was reading this chapter, I was struggling with an overwhelming feeling of being trapped and suffocated in a deadly confusion of deception. I don't know how else to put it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In fact, this chapter, as Richard said when we were talking about this with him before the podcast, this is where that alligator kills us. Mm -hmm. We're down in that deep part of the pool. Its claws are in us, pinning us down. And with this doctrine comes our death. Once we get through this and accept it, there's no going back, there's no getting out, there's no rescue, except for a divine miracle of life from the Lord Jesus. But praise God, this chapter, which by the way has 53 footnotes with added materials that aren't readily accessible in the main pages of the chapter, this chapter does admit and describe the dark heart of Adventism so it can be seen. This chapter admits that the investigative judgment is a judgment not of unbelievers, as the Bible teaches, but a judgment of those who profess Christ, not of the wicked. And this chapter admits that Adventists believe that believers who do not pass this judgment will be blotted out of the book of life. They actually say that the book of life contains both believers and unbelievers. Again, a complete contradiction to what the Bible actually says. Even more, Adventists admit in this book that they believe sin will only be fully removed from the universe when Satan, the scapegoat, bears the confessed sins of the saved out of heaven. And they even say that because of this role, Satan has a part in the atonement. They actually say that. If anyone listening to this podcast still has a sense of loyalty to Adventism or some confusion over whether or not it is Christian, please listen closely to this podcast. Adventism admits that its entire structure is built on the belief that Jesus is investigating believers, and Satan is the one who finally and fully removes the sins of the saved, cleanses heaven, and is involved in the atonement of our sin. Now, I realized that my sense of suffocating entrapment as I read this chapter stemmed from the fact that I was reading Adventism's justification for its most hidden but defining doctrine of demons, and that is that Satan is at the heart of its soteriology. Adventism is an organization that only pretends to be Christian. But I want to remind you before we get into this fundamental belief that we love your emails. 
please contact us at formeradventist at gmail.com and go to proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly proclamation emails, to find links to our YouTube channel, our online magazines and articles, and you can donate there as well using the Donate tab. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook and leave a five-star review if you love this podcast wherever you listen. And now, Nikki, I have my question for you. Okay. How were you affected as an Adventist by this doctrine of the investigative judgment? Well, you know, like with so many of my other answers, the effect was different at different stages of my life in Adventism. So when I was a child, I remember feeling like this was going to vindicate me. One day, all of my recorded sins and all of the sins done to me would be exposed in a great big movie, and people would see that I was treated unfairly sometimes, like really, really unfairly, and I would be vindicated. (laughs) But I was also terrified that my sins would be exposed, so I kind of had a confused reaction to it. Then middle school, they start teaching you about Adventist history. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at that time in my life, how did I get so lucky to be born into the remnant church? And isn't it kind of weird that this guy had a vision in a cornfield uh-huh. after we had a failed date setting? It seems strange. And then as I got older and I moved to California, it kind of didn't matter so much anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. I was more progressive and... Sabbath was made for man, not man for the (laughs) Sabbath, and I was mingling with non-Adventist Christians, and I was hearing about grace, and so I didn't worry so much about it. I wasn't so sure of it until one one Saturday, a family member took me to somebody's home who was actually not allowed to teach in the local Adventist congregation (laughs) because he was so rigid, (laughs) and I watched him give a presentation with charts that spanned an entire wall of a very large living room. And he was teaching the shut door. I didn't understand what it was. But I left there so confused. This was in my early 20s. So confused, I was sure that I would not be saved until I understood this. And it was overwhelming. And that's when I started to feel the weight of this doctrine. And and I knew I had to figure out what I believed. But I'm never going to understand this. And so I just sort of avoided it. Wow. Isn't that the way it is, though? It's so confusing. It's so dull. It's so gray and boring. Mm-hmm. And yet, everything about your life hangs on it. Yeah. At all stages of life. Yeah. It just, it's, you just interact a little differently with it. I do remember, as a kid, telling God, I'll never remember every bad thing I do. Please, please just take control over me and, and save me, because oh. I can't do it. So sad. What about you? As I've said before, my parents, especially my mother, always had doubts that this doctrine could actually be true because it would mean that God didn't know his own. And she had these doubts partly because her older brother, who was an Adventist pastor until they forbade him from teaching anymore because he wouldn't teach this doctrine, he had influenced her significantly. And my father saw the validity of his arguments, but, you know, I was raised in that sort of never-never land of, well, we can't completely be sure, Mm. but it might be true. And somehow I still believed Ellen was a prophet, so the effect of it was I treated this doctrine as if it were true, and I learned it in Adventist school. So its effect on me was terrifying. 
I remember in my mid-teens being unable to go to sleep at night until, you know, after two in the morning. And believe me, my mother was very careful with the health message, and I was in bed no later than nine. So I'm lying in bed, worrying for hours about whether I'd committed the unpardonable sin, or if I had any unconfessed sins, or how often had I actually accidentally or halfway on purpose broken the Sabbath by thinking a secular thought, or mentioning something about school to somebody, or hearing somebody talk about their work, even those idle thoughts and irreverent words that Ellen spoke about could keep me out of heaven if I didn't confess them. The older I got, the more of a neurotic mess I was. And I can remember getting up in the middle of the night, looking at the clock, feeling frantic because I couldn't sleep, and just being terrified that I was not going to pass the investigative judgment. Yeah, it was a pretty crippling thing. When it started getting better was when I was in college, and we heard some progressive Adventist teaching at Weeks of Prayer. And I remember Maury Venden. I think he he sort of changed a lot for a lot of Adventists. He took away my immediate fear of the investigative judgment, but I realize now, looking back, reading some of his books and remembering what he taught, he was still teaching Adventism. He just sort of glossed over the investigative judgment and tried to present Jesus more, um, you know, as somebody I didn't have to fear There were ways I could get past that and not worry about every unconfessed sin. But I did feel pretty crippled as a kid and as a teenager by this doctrine. You know, after reading this chapter, I cannot figure out how you could water this down to be anything other than what it is. It's just not good news. It is not good news. And it's not good news even if you don't believe or say you don't believe the old way of believing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are all kinds of rehashed versions, more progressive versions of the investigative judgment, but none of them can deny what Ellen White wrote. Mm -hmm. And none of them can deny that this is true Adventism. This is the only unique doctrine of Adventism. This is the pillar, as Dale Ratzleff always says, of Seventh-day Adventism. You cannot be an Adventist if you don't believe this doctrine, because every other doctrine is pinned to this one. This is the foundation pillar. Now, I've heard some Adventists say, and, and these are Adventists who very much appreciate the work of Desmond Ford, I've heard some say that they don't believe the investigative judgment is right, they don't believe it's real, but they very much believe in Ellen White, and they very much believe in the Sabbath. Do you know how they allow themselves to get there? I think I do. In the past, I edited one of his articles on the Sabbath for the magazine Adventist Today. So I've read some of his work, I've even talked with his wife, and I've heard him speak. So the way I understand this is, they have a self-styled Adventism. And progressives will often say, oh, you know, Adventism is like a big tent. There's room under this big tent for people who have all kinds of beliefs. You don't have to believe in that classic investigative judgment to be an Adventist. But here's the deal. There's two things about this that I want to say. First of all, all of these progressive Adventists who believe you don't have to believe the investigative judgment in order to stay Adventist— retain the worldview. And the worldview that keeps them Adventist is the worldview that says reality is physical. Man is physical. Man has no spirit that leaves the body at death. Jesus was physical. Jesus also had no advantage we don't have. 
um, they still believe that Ellen White was somehow significant, whether they would call her a prophet or not, they still believe she's significant, and they still believe the Sabbath is eternal, which makes the law eternal. They also believe that Jesus could have failed in some way. So, even though Desmond Ford was really, really clear biblically about how the investigative judgment could not be true, in my personal opinion, he didn't go far enough because the person, Ellen White, who made this doctrine and who made it the central pillar of Adventism, he did not ever fully come around and renounce her as a false prophet. I have come to believe, and this is, I'm speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for people in general, but I have come to believe that Ellen White is a false prophet, was a false prophet, had doctrines of demons, channeled spirits, and every Adventist doctrine is shaped by her, so that whether you think you believe this or not, the fact that you hold that Adventist worldview that redefines reality as purely physical— with even the Holy Spirit communicating with us through the brain neurons of our frontal lobe without bringing an actual spirit to life when we trust Jesus, the fact that none of that's in the equation means you're still believing doctrines of demons. Mm -hmm. So, you can discard this, but if you hold that woman who had the authority to give it as a doctrine, you're holding all the other untruths in your head, and it's shaping your life. Well, and all of those doctrinal ideas that you listed out that people still retain, even when they try to get rid of the IJ, they're all created to hold the IJ together. So, yes. it's hard to understand how they can separate that. Each of those ones you listed is necessary for the IJ to exist and thrive. And I would also say they have never critically and carefully read this book that we've gone through oh. because every chapter builds to this moment. I agree. And everything that's going to follow this chapter shores it up. Did you have a hard time with this chapter, Nikki? <laughs> yeah. We say this every week. Yeah. This one was just dark and suffocating. Yeah. I felt like at the beginning of the book, it was difficult and frustrating because we really had to explain their definitions and what they meant. Because if you had a Christian listening, you had to explain how this is wrong to the Christians because it's veiled, right? Right. Now that we're on this end of the book, I feel like now we're explaining to the Adventists. I agree. I think Christians who read this <laughs> chapter are going to go, what? Yeah. What? They're going to see. We don't need to help them see. Right. It's the Adventists now. It's the people who are pinned under that alligator who need to know yes. that everything written in this chapter can be discarded. There Absolutely. is such great hope and such great news that does not look at all like this chapter. Absolutely. And Jesus is still stronger than that alligator. Yeah. Nikki, why don't you read this doctrine? <laughs> okay. And we'll go from there. Okay. So, this is Fundamental Belief 24. Christ's Ministry in the Heavenly Sanctuary. There is a sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up and not humans. In it, Christ ministers on our behalf, making available to believers the benefits of His atoning sacrifice offered once for all on the cross. At His ascension, He was inaugurated as our great high priest and began His intercessory ministry, which was typified by the work of the high priest in the holy place of the earthly sanctuary. In 1844, at the end of the prophetic period of 2,300 days, he entered the second and last phase of his atoning ministry, which is typified by the work of the high priest in the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary. 
It is a work of investigative judgment, which is part of the ultimate disposition of all sin, typified by the cleansing of the ancient Hebrew sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. In that typical service, the sanctuary was cleansed with the blood of animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things are purified with the perfect sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. The investigative judgment reveals to heavenly intelligences who among the dead are asleep in Christ and therefore in Him are deemed worthy to have part in the first resurrection. It also makes manifest who among the living are abiding in Christ, keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, and in Him, therefore, are ready for translation into His everlasting kingdom. This judgment vindicates the justice of God in saving those who believe in Jesus. It declares that those who have remained loyal to God shall receive the kingdom. The completion of this ministry of Christ will mark the close of human probation before the second advent. Can you even believe the things that are mentioned? (laughs) I mean, right off the bat, 1844 is named in a fundamental belief. (laughs) Yeah, that can't be Christian. (laughs) That phrase, human probation, where is that in the Bible? None of this is in the Bible. No. None of this. And they're going to take the book of Hebrews and they're going to destroy it through this chapter. And this is exactly why, as an Adventist, I couldn't read Hebrews. It confused me. I remember it actually making me feel irritated when people would suggest Hebrews or refer to Hebrews. It just irritated me because Hebrews is used to support and explain this doctrine. And Hebrews decimates this doctrine. It's so perverse. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. Well, instead of looking further at the actual words of the doctrine, since we could say something about every sentence, (laughs) we'll just start walking through the explanations in the book. Okay. Because they reveal some very interesting Adventist biases. And Nikki, before we do that, when we were talking earlier, you came up with a great way to summarize what the book actually says about atonement and judgment. Would you please walk through that? We'll set that stage first, because I think that framework will help us understand the arguments in the chapter. Well, I always outline the chapter by their headings and subheadings and sub subheadings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was looking over their outline for this chapter, and it became very clear, just with their words, mm-hmm. that they have put the atonement in three phases. Those three phases include the cross, the second phase is the investigative judgment, and the third is the scapegoat. Uh-huh. This is a part of atonement. Yes. And then... They have three phases of judgment, and those three phases of judgment are overlaid on top of the three phases of atonement. So, those three phases are the premillennial judgment, which is their investigative judgment. Mm -hmm. The second is the millennial judgment. This is where we talk about the movie in heaven, (laughs) where where the, the people who have been saved now are able to ask God, why didn't you save everybody else? And they're going to go over the records with him while Satan wanders the earth. <laughs> with all the sins placed on him already. Yes. And then the third phase is called the executive judgment. And this is when everything will be burned up with fire. But what's important is that these three phases of judgment are laying across at different points in the three phases of the atonement. It's all one. So, when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, to them, they just mean phase one, done, check. Exactly. On to phase two. 
There is absolutely no assurance whatsoever in this. No. It bears mentioning that what Jesus said completely contradicts this model. In John 5.24, he said, those who believe pass from death to life and do not come into judgment. But Adventism keeps you in judgment as atonement is being perpetuated in heaven with Jesus forgiving sins and applying his blood when supposed believers are confessing whatever they remember to confess. And this was the thing that kept me so afraid at night as a teenager. I understood that this investigative judgment was probably going on in heaven right now, but Jesus had shed his blood so he could forgive my sin with the application of his blood if I remembered to confess it. But the Bible doesn't say that. If we believe, we pass from death to life and do not come into judgment. In fact, Jesus said in John 3.18, we all know John 3.16, but who in an Adventist setting ever learned 18, which says that when a person believes, he passes out of judgment and is not condemned, but he who has not believed is condemned already. Adventists don't believe in what they call original sin. Adventists don't believe in depravity. What they believe in is that people are born somewhat clean slates, but start sinning immediately, like crying too much as a baby, so mothers spank their newborns to try to get them to stop being rebellious. Adventists have a completely warped view of the nature of man. They don't understand that we're born spiritually dead because they have a physical reality, and then you have to beat the sin out of them. This continues through your life. And once you, quotes accept Jesus, then you are now tasked with the job of always confessing, always confessing. And if you forget anything, that blood will not be applied because judgment and atonement are overlaid, as you pointed out. They work together to accomplish that goal of saving you. It's a co-partnership, actually, as Ellen White put it. We read a quote a couple weeks ago about that co-partnership. And, you know, you don't even enter into the three phases of atonement until you accept Jesus. So, in that phase one, you accept Jesus, and now God's going to write your name in the book of life. It's at that moment, not before. Never mind the fact that Scripture says, all who are in the book of life were from the foundations of the earth. That's right. So, in Adventism, your name is entered when you accept what Jesus did on the cross, however they word that, and then you got to keep your name in that book because he will blot your name out if you forget to confess certain sins or if you commit the unpardonable sin. Which, by the way, is always hard to define, but it was understood in Adventism as grieving the Holy Spirit, which essentially meant having some perpetual sin that you just never get over and you keep committing it, and and that's grieving the Holy Spirit, just a repeated sin that you just will not give up. Well, and it's interesting because in Scripture, when it talks about grieving the Holy Spirit, it's in the context of the reality that the Spirit indwells you and does not leave you. And so, when you sin, you cause Him to be present in the middle of that because you are sealed with Him. In Adventism, if you grieve Him, He's going to take off. Right. He's going to leave. Yeah. So, you grieve him enough and he'll just be gone. Like a passive-aggressive parent, it's like, fine, have it your way. Don't come to me for help. (laughs) 
So yeah, and then there were other people who just had no idea what the unpardonable sin was. And there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear because you don't actually know if you're saved. I mean, come on, looking at this chapter, you can't know until phase two of the three (laughs) phases of the judgment, which Uh falls somewhere after phase two of the three phases of atonement right before phase three when the scapegoat goes away. Unbelievable. And this is the core doctrine, the only unique doctrine of Adventism. Every other Adventist doctrine is shared by at least one other religious group. Sabbath is not unique. Soul sleep is not unique. After all, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. So, this is the defining doctrine of Adventism. What a horrible thing. And I think it's worth pointing out that this defining doctrine isn't even accurately introduced in this book. They don't deal with the origins of this doctrine at all. They do not address it. And I think it's because I personally, this is just speculation, I think it's because it's embarrassing. So tell them, how did this doctrine come about? Well, I remember being taught this in junior high, but it's hard to find now. They do not talk about it. So Hiram Edson... Mm-hmm. was one of the Millerites. He was among the Millerite movement. He was out there waiting for Jesus on October 22nd, 1844. And he writes that when Jesus did not return, they spent the whole night weeping. <laughs> well, later the next day, he decided with some other people that they were going to go and visit other Adventists. But They wanted to avoid the sneers of the people who didn't believe Jesus was returning, so they took a shortcut through a Mm cornfield. And he writes, now mind you, this is after not sleeping all night. (laughs) He writes, we started, and while passing through a large field, I was stopped about midway of the field. Heaven seemed open to my view, and I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the Most Holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to this earth on the 10th day of the seventh month at the end of the 2300 days. He, for the first time, entered on that day the second apartment of that sanctuary and that he had a work to perform in the most holy place before coming to earth. So Edson ran off and he shared this with Crozier and Franklin B. Hahn and They wrote a paper, and they shared this with the other Adventists, and it became a fundamental doctrine of Adventism. That's right. And the fact is, in his book, The Cultic Doctrine of Seventh-day Adventists, Dale Ratzlaff writes about this history of this doctrine, which is, as you said, not given in the Fundamental Belief book. This doctrine was written by Crozier in a paper that Ellen White was able to see before she had her vision that revealed it. And it's so interesting because she claimed not to have read the paper, but the historical record is such she was in the house, in the room where this paper was, with the door closed. And after some time, she came out of that room. And, you know, she claimed she never read the paper, but she then had a vision confirming this idea, this investigative judgment as the explanation for what really happened on October 22, 1844, instead of Jesus coming back. This was a face-saving device, but it didn't originate with her. And now, it's fascinating to me that Adventists don't really talk about Hiram Edson having a vision in the cornfield Mm -hmm. as the first revelation of this. I learned that in Adventist school when I took Adventist doctrines in junior high. I learned that. 
I can still picture the the art piece yes. that represents this. I'm sure you could Google it. But now they don't talk about it. It's a little embarrassing, and besides, it kind of detracts from Ellen White's authority, and it just sounds a little too weird. And it's interesting the way that they present this great disappointment in the chapter. It's very vague. Yes. They say that they were among Lutherans and Methodists and all kinds of different groups of people who were studying this chart in Daniel, and they've all decided 1844 is important. They had different ideas about what was going to happen in 1844, Mm -hmm. but they were all disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go on to say, but they, the Adventists, Mm -hmm. very general, continued to study Scripture, and they realized what really happened. Studying Scripture, they came up with this. Not one text can be found to support what they say, although they try to use proof texts in here. Mm -hmm. But it's not in the Bible. And you know, just back to Desmond Ford, that was the power of what he did. His paper, which he presented at Glacier View in 1980, was a clear study from Scripture showing that this doctrine cannot be true. And just by the way, the chapter of the Bible which most helped him, most revealed, took the veil off his eyes concerning the investigative judgment was Hebrews 9. It was the book of Hebrews which convinced Desmond Ford that this is not a scriptural doctrine. The Adventists use the book of Hebrews to try to prop it up. Talk about misusing and misrepresenting God's word to try to support a lie that denigrates the Lord Jesus, that detracts from his finished work, that gives you a work salvation that's dependent upon your own memory and ability to remember and confess your sins and to keep the law. What they've done is horrifying. Yeah, I want to tell people who are listening, if you've never read the book of Hebrews, I'd encourage you to do it in one sitting. Sit down and read it. And if you need to, listen to it and read along. And if you'd like to go through it with us, go on the podcast and look for our series on the book of Hebrews. And we'll talk about the different Adventist doctrines that are demolished by this book, chapter by chapter. Well, in this book, the first thing that they actually try to argue is that the sanctuary in heaven is a physical place, not heaven itself. And that idea, that idea of identifying a physical heavenly sanctuary is central to their whole explanation of the investigative judgment, because it involves Jesus up in a physical sanctuary moving around from compartment to compartment with an ark with the golden cherubim and with blood sprinkling around and literal books, by the way. So, this setting the stage by trying to make it physical is how they begin. But I do want to point out that on page 352 of this book, they actually say this, there is more to salvation history than just that Jesus died. It reaches beyond the cross Jesus' resurrection and ascension direct our attention to the heavenly sanctuary, and get this, where no longer the Lamb, He ministers as priest. I just have to say, Revelation describes Him as a Lamb looking as if it had been slaughtered, sitting on the throne with the Father. Jesus never stops being the Lamb. He never stops being portrayed as the Lamb. 
He is the lamb, who is the lion, who is the sacrifice, who is the high priest. He is the lamb from start to finish. He never stops. So, in order to introduce their whole idea of the physicalness of the sanctuary in heaven, Nikki, could you read us what Ellen White said about having a vision of the sanctuary? Yeah, this is from Early Writings 55.1. She said, I saw the Father rise from the throne. So, we have a physical throne now, Uh and she's seeing the Father, which is interesting. I saw the Father rise from the throne and in a flaming chariot go into the holy of holies within the veil and sit down. Then Jesus rose up from the throne, and the most of those who were bowed down arose with him. I did not see one ray of light pass from Jesus to the careless multitude after he arose, and they were left in perfect darkness. Those who arose when Jesus did kept their eyes fixed on him as he left the throne and led them out a little way. Then he raised his right arm, And we heard his lovely voice saying, Wait here, I am going to my Father to receive the kingdom. Keep your garments spotless, and in a little while I will return from the wedding and receive you to myself. Then a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire surrounded by angels came to where Jesus was. He stepped into the chariot and was born to the holiest where the Father sat. There I beheld Jesus, a high priest, standing before the Father, On the hem of his garment was a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. Those who rose with Jesus would send up their faith to him in the holiest and pray, My Father, give us thy spirit. Then Jesus would breathe upon them the Holy Ghost. In that breath was light, power, and much love, joy, and peace. I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. They did not know that Jesus had left it. Satan appeared to be by the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Satan would then breathe upon them an unholy influence. In it there was light and much power, but no sweet love, joy, and peace. Satan's object was to keep them deceived and to draw back and deceive God's children. So there you have it. You have a physical father. Mm -hmm. You have a physical temple. Mm -hmm. You have Jesus going to the wedding but leaving the church behind. I I don't get that. I, I don't either. And you have Satan in the throne room answering the prayers of the Christians who don't know Jesus went into the holiest of holies. And by the way, why is the holiest of holies not where God was? Right. Why did he have to go into the holiest of holies? This is the most confusing thing. When you actually read scripture, Ellen White made sure that her false worldview was perpetuated from the ground up. And to understand and believe the investigative judgment as she wrote about it and as Adventism continues to teach it, you really have to believe that reality is ultimately physical, not spiritual. Isaiah said he saw God's glory filling the heavens. The train of his glory was huge, that no place built by human hands can contain him. God is spirit, Jesus himself said to the woman at the well, John 4, 24. God is spirit. A God who is spirit cannot be contained in a physical temple. The temple, the sanctuary, the tabernacle in heaven, which the book of Hebrews talks about, 
it was represented by the pattern that God gave Moses to build in Israel, but that was a physical representation of a spiritual reality. It was never intended to say there is a literal building that God built in heaven. But that's the premise. And in fact, this book says, It is clear, therefore, that the scriptures present the heavenly sanctuary as a real place, not a metaphor or abstraction. Nikki, real does not mean physical. God is real, and He is not physical. The Holy Spirit, real. The fact that Jesus is omnipresent, real. (laughs) It doesn't require physicality to be real. It is a false argument. It's a straw man argument that is the foundation of this doctrine, which is the fundamental foundational belief of Adventism. It doesn't require a literal physical temple. They make the argument that it's physical based on the book of Revelation and that we see various aspects of the temple in vision. Oh, that's true. And I want to say, so is Jesus literally a loaf of bread? Good point. Is he literally a candlestick? Is he literally incense? So is John seeing the literal ark in Revelation 11, the literal ark with the Ten Commandments when he sees the ark in heaven? You know, the point in the context when John is shown the ark in heaven, the context is God is remembering his covenant. The point of the ark and the tables of stone in Israel was not that there was an eternal law that was placed in the middle of Israel. The point was there was a covenant that God made with Israel, they placed in Israel as their constitution and as their agreement with God. And when John sees that, he's seeing the fact that God remembers his covenant and he keeps his covenant promises It doesn't mean that all of these metaphors are literal. It means God gave representations to limited humans to represent eternal truths about himself that were beyond physical. So, after they establish that there is a physical temple in heaven, they move on to Christ's ministry in this heavenly sanctuary. And this is where they talk about his three phases of ministry, which accomplish atonement at the end of it. They say the sanctuary illustrated three phases of Christ's ministry, the substitutionary sacrifice, so there's the cross, the priestly mediation, their investigative judgment, Mm -hmm. and the final judgment, which is where the scapegoat bears the sins of the world. And then ultimately is burned up when God burns up sin. They move on from that into some really horrific things that they say about Jesus and his mediatorial work. They say... From a legal perspective, the world was restored by the cross to favor with God. And they try to use Romans 5.18 as the proof for that. Romans 5.18 has nothing to do with that statement. That's the statement that says, as sin entered by one man's disobedience, by one act of obedience, the justification of life for all men was made. That does not say the world was restored to favor with God. But then they go on to say, The atonement or reconciliation was completed on the cross as foreshadowed by the sacrifices, and the penitent believer can trust in this finished work of our Lord. Well, that sounds good, but the fact is they're setting up a false foundation that says the cross somehow restored to favor the world with God. 
when that's not how the Bible describes the cross. They go further down below. They say, as the atoning death of Christ reconciled the world to God, so his mediation or the application of the merits of his sinless life and substitutionary death makes reconciliation or atonement with God a personal reality for the believer. So you have the world is reconciled to God, but all of that sanctification required for salvation Mm -hmm. doesn't happen until you have a personal reality with God and you are applying the merits of his sinless life to yourself as you confess these sins. They say the Levitical priesthood illustrates the saving ministry Christ has carried on since his death. So he is in an ongoing saving ministry Mm -hmm. after the order of the Levitical priesthood. How can they use the book of Hebrews to support any of this when the book of Hebrews tells us that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek? And the Levitical priesthood and the law that held it together has been done away with. Hebrews 7.12 says where there is a change of the priesthood, there is a change of the law. And the thing is, Adventism doesn't actually tell its members that Jesus is functioning as a Levitical priest, except as you just read in this book, it's strongly suggested. But they picture him that way in all of their art, in all of their children's books. They picture Jesus dressed in a Levitical priest's high priestly robe, complete with that turban on his head that says holiness to the Lord, the ephod, the Urim and the Thummim. Like, why would Jesus need a Urim and the Thummim to know what God's (laughs) will is? Please. But that's how they picture him. So Adventists grow up and live their lives believing that Jesus is actually functioning as a Levitical high priest in heaven during the investigative judgment. No, no. The cross was the end of his atoning work, not the beginning. It was everything. The cross was everything. There is no ongoing atonement in heaven. It's his life, his resurrected eternal life that intercedes for us forever. Absolutely. The fact that he's alive, that's why we're alive. It's his resurrection life that gives us life. And as long as he's alive, we're alive. But they make that out to be like, for the rest of his life, he's going to be interceding for us in this priesthood. They say the Levitical priesthood illustrates the saving ministry Christ has carried on since his death. No, he saved us at the cross. And when that actually applies to us, well, it's from the foundation of the world if we are in his book of life. And when he gives us faith to believe, we enter life with him. It's not about becoming good, becoming obedient, overcoming by beating our flesh into submission. It's about trusting Jesus and being given life his resurrection life. And just by the way, their argument about his ongoing mediatorial work is a twisting of what the author of Hebrews says in verses 23 to 25 of Hebrews 7. And this is what it says. The former priests, that would be the Levites, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They had limited lifespans. They could only intercede for Israel as long as they lived. But then 24, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever 
forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Nikki, this is the proof that sin will never rise again. Jesus' shed blood is for eternity. His intercession is eternal. His intercession is not some job up in heaven throwing his blood spots at records of our sin. No, that happened at the cross. He is in heaven, resurrected in a glorified human body, God the Son, living forever, representing God and man in himself, the true mediator, the one mediator, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, the one mediator between God and man, and he lives forever. His blood forever protects us from sin. That's what that means. And the text clearly said that he saves forever those who draw near to God through him, not those who compulsively repent of every known and unknown sin. Which we can't remember anyway. No. And again, just a reminder, the Day of Atonement was to cover unremembered sins. That's right. And I did not learn that as an Adventist. We've talked about the what they call the first phase of the atonement, which is the cross, which, by the way, is the whole atonement, but just saying. Then we talked some about the second part of their atonement, which is that investigative judgment going on in heaven, where Jesus moved into the most holy place in 1844. And by the way, where Ellen White, in that quote you read, mm-hmm. says that when Jesus moved, the people who did not accept the revelation, supposedly, of this investigative judgment beginning, all those Sunday Christians down below who just didn't believe what the Adventists were saying, that Satan is now answering their prayers. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one reason there is so much fear among Adventists that if they don't pray right or believe right, Satan will hear them and answer their prayers and they won't know it. And Adventists generally don't even know where that fear comes from, but it came from that quote you read. Mm -hmm. So, we've talked about that. And then we come to this last phase of their atonement, which is where Jesus finally finishes that investigative judgment, and then he does the unthinkable. He places all the confessed sins of the saved on the scapegoat, Azazel, as they call it, Azazel the scapegoat, and they say that is Satan. And Satan is the one who bears those sins outside of camp. Now, I just want to say they try to use Leviticus 16 to make the argument that there were two goats. They try to explain this by saying, in Leviticus 16, there were two goats. One was the goat for the Lord, and one was the goat for Azazel. The goat for the Lord was sacrificed. The goat for Azazel was sent out alive with the sins confessed on its head. The argument to try to say that that is Satan, representing Satan, is very convoluted in my mind and not there. But I just want to back up and say, in Leviticus 16, these two goats, by the way, were chosen by lot. They both had to be perfect, spotless goats or lambs. The book of Leviticus is clear that it could have been either. And these two spotless lambs or goats were chosen by lot, one to be the sacrifice and one to be the scapegoat. So, from the beginning, we see that the scapegoat was a perfect lamb. Satan cannot fit that bill. And by the way, there is no sense of choice or randomness in the choice between Jesus, the sacrifice, 
and Satan. I mean, Ellen White tries to set up in her story of origins the idea that God selected Jesus over Lucifer to be exalted to the sun. So, within her framework, this definition of Azazel or the scapegoat would make sense, but it doesn't make sense from the Bible. Also, in Leviticus 16.10, it says that the scapegoat was for atonement. Not only the lamb that was the blood sacrifice, but the scapegoat was for atonement. And we learn in Hebrews 13 that Jesus went outside the camp to die, to take the sins. And in Israel, the scapegoat represented the high priest confessing the sins on this lamb or this goat, sending it outside the camp so the sins of Israel would be taken far from the people. That's the symbolism of the scapegoat. The Adventists, thanks to Ellen White, have made a central doctrine of Satan being the scapegoat, because after all, it just feels so good to think that in the final accounting, Satan is punished for all the sin of the human race. That means people never actually have to take responsibility for their own sin, nor do they have to face the fact that they're born by nature children of wrath. Satan's responsible, not man. But here is what the footnote on that passage in the book says, And the average reader wouldn't have found this if they are just reading without looking up the footnotes, but this is a quote from the SDA Bible Commentary. Thus the cycle is completed, the drama ended. Only when Satan, the instigator of all sin, is finally removed, can it truly be said that sin is forever blotted out of God's universe. In this accommodated sense, we may understand that, and get this, the scapegoat has a part in the atonement, and they reference Leviticus 16.10. With the righteous saved, the wicked cut off, and Satan no more? Then, not till then, will the universe be in a state of perfect harmony as it was originally before sin entered. Nikki, the implications of this are horrendous. Satan is the one who restores the universe to sinlessness. Satan is the one who gets rid of sin. Satan is the one who bears our sins if we're saved. This is horrifying, and they actually say in the Bible commentary, the Adventist Bible commentary, that Satan has a role in the atonement. This is clearly the doctrines of demons, and their scapegoat theology is the the fingerprint of that. You can't get away from it. At the heart, the very deepest beating heart of Adventism, this is a satanic soteriology. Satan is their ultimate sin bearer. I don't care how they argue that. Ellen White wrote that he would be punished for the sins he caused, and he would be punished for causing them. Both. She wrote both. This is exactly what Adventism believes and what gives it its shape. It really seems as though all of Adventism is a reaction to Satan, from their story of origins all the way to the end when he bears away the sins of the world. You know, it's interesting, the book says that this banishment of the scapegoat moves them into the second phase of the final judgment, and they say that this is where all of the books that record the sins of the wicked are going to be open, and it's going to benefit those who are saved, because here is where we see that God was fair. So, we see this all tying into her story of origins and Mm -hmm. Satan's original accusation that God is unjust and unfair. And so, this not only takes away the sins of the world, but it vindicates God. So, Satan also vindicates God. I find it interesting, too, 
that they actually, in their summary of this whole doctrine, they actually say, the heavenly records, therefore, are more than just a tool for sifting the genuine from the false. They also are the foundation for confirming the genuine believers before the angels. And they also said Christ cannot assure salvation for those who profess to be Christians only on the basis of how many good deeds they have performed. Now we learn who's genuine because of the way the sins are dealt with and the sins are placed on Satan. And it becomes evident in this great cosmic revelation of answered questions to everybody who has a question, who's saved, who's not, and why. And it's just interesting that Ellen White makes such a case for convincing the angels and for the unfallen universe of the vindication of God and the vindication of the saved. She taught alien intelligences. Yeah, she did. The Bible didn't teach this. No. So we laugh at people who are looking for, you know, some sign of extraterrestrial intelligence. Ellen White taught this. She taught this is going on and would be culminated with these extraterrestrial intelligences believing in God because of us. And she broke humans down into three categories, the wicked and the genuine believers, which will be revealed to the aliens yes, and those who appear to be genuine believers, but are not. And the difference between the genuine believers and the ones who appear to be genuine is that the genuine believers live in obedience to God's law. So this goes back to vindicating that eternal decalogue, which Satan said was unfair of God to give us. And this takes me back again to that prayer garden outside of the church, Pioneer Memorial Church at Andrews University, which is where the Adventist Seminary is. In that garden, as I've said before, you enter according to its own written legend, which is on the edge of the garden. You read that before you enter. You enter through these seven steps, which they say are the seven steps of creation. You land at the bottom of these steps in front of the cross, which says, over it, I will come again. You turn from the cross to walk across the garden into a giant Ten Commandments. And it says in the legend on this garden that the Ten Commandments is where you find the heart of God. This is exactly backwards. This is a satanic doctrine. That is the doctrine which this investigative judgment teaches, that Satan will carry the sins that the people who are saved will be keeping the law, and those are the true believers, and they will only be revealed after their lifetime of probation, dying without knowing whether or not they're saved or lost. And when Jesus comes back, those who actually passed their probation in the investigative judgment will be raised and will be taken to heaven. And they won't know till then if they made it. And when they describe those believers in this book, those who've claimed the blood of Christ and who have kept his law, they quote from Revelation where it says, He who overcomes, Jesus said, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I remember believing that all of the he who overcomes in Revelation were about the people who keep God's law perfectly, the people who do everything they're supposed to do perfectly or make sure that anything they didn't do right was covered. Or their names will be blotted out from that book. Remember, your name is oh, not yeah. permanent in there. And then I read from 1 John 5, what does it mean to overcome? What does that mean? 
The same author of Revelation wrote in 1 John 5, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We overcome by our faith in Christ alone, not by living up to this unique, apocalyptic, cultic (laughs) standard of living. And you know, there's one other aspect to this doctrine that they cover in the book that it's interesting, Nikki, that both of us have a tendency to gloss over it because, frankly, it crosses our eyes. But that's the whole prophetic thing. The way they distort the book of Daniel, Mm -hmm. the way they try to make time charts and do strange math to come up with the date, 1844. Not only 1844, but October 22. I don't want to go into detail in that because that's just crazy. If you read Daniel, you don't come up with any of that. If you read Revelation, you don't come up with any of that. But Nikki, you had a great paragraph that you marked out in the book that I just think we have to share, just so people who might not understand this doctrine know in brief how they talk about it. I don't know if anyone will understand what I'm about to read, but it made me laugh, and it shouldn't have because it's false false teaching. It just helped me with the fact that, of course, I didn't understand any of this as an Adventist. Of course, I chalked it up to people having greater minds than mine. It was so confusing. They say here, As the starting point for the 490 years, Gabriel points to the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which took place in 457 BC, the seventh year of Artaxerxes. The 490 years ended in AD 34 when we cut off 490 years from the 2300 years. We are left with 1810 (laughs) years. Since the 2300 years were to extend 1810 years beyond AD 34, we reach the year 1844. (laughs) I just started laughing like, okay, I'll take your word for that. And this is where they go into all of that stuff about the various groups who believed like they did that something was happening during that time. And like you said, we don't have the time to go through all of this, but I do want to encourage people to go on YouTube and search for Roots, Shoots, and Those in Cahoots. By Tim Martin. Yes, by Tim Martin. He does an excellent job explaining this Millerite, this Adventist movement, and all of these different people who got caught up in it, and the various cultic branches that came out of that, Seventh-day Adventism, of course, being one of them. And just for those who wonder, the verse Daniel 8.14 is considered the key anchor verse for this doctrine. And just so you know, what Adventists have done to try to make that the key anchor verse for the doctrine, here is the verse out of the NASB. He said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, I have to read that same verse to you out of the clear word. Here's kind of how you know that they've done something really bad with it. He answered, after 2,300 prophetic days, which represent actual years, God will restore the truth about the heavenly sanctuary to its rightful place. Then the process of judgment will begin, of which the yearly cleansing of the earthly sanctuary was a type, and God will vindicate His people. Well, that is clearly adding to Scripture. The Bible is very clear that adding to Scripture is a sin 
that will not leave the person unpunished, but that all the plagues written in the book of Revelation will be added to anybody who adds to that book. And Deuteronomy says no one is allowed to add to the words. Ellen White added to the words, and the clear word adds to the words. You know, this chapter just reminded me of quicksand. Once you put your weight on it, you are going down. And it is very distracting. And I just want to point out to people, none of this, none of what we've looked at today is found anywhere in the apostolic gospel. Absolutely not. None of the apostles taught this. And that was the gospel that was handed down once for all. This is the one faith We are to follow the teachings of the apostles. This is what scripture teaches us. It was sufficient. We are not to go beyond what is written. And this entire chapter is going beyond what is written. And it's interesting that they actually have to close their chapter by saying that this isn't a hopeless doctrine. I mean, they say, far from robbing the believer of his assurance with Christ, the doctrine of the sanctuary sustains it. I mean, they're trying to hold... The whole idea that this is good news together Mm -hmm. with just some, be encouraged by this. Don't be afraid of this. They say God intends the good news of Christ's closing ministry of salvation to go to all the world before Christ's return. Central to this message is the everlasting gospel, which is to be proclaimed with a sense of urgency because the hour of God's judgment has come. That everlasting gospel is the three angels' message of Seventh-day Adventism in their mind. They say all who wish to retain their names in the book of life must make things right with God and their fellow humans during this time of God's judgment. Christ's work as high priest is nearing its completion. (laughs) The years of human probation are slipping away. Mm. No one knows just when God's voice will proclaim it is finished. Take heed, Christ said, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Nikki, this is horrifying to me. People say, oh, you left because you wanted to sin. You left because you wanted to eat ham sandwiches and drink and smoke and drink coffee and break the Sabbath. No, we did not leave Adventism because we were unhappy or because anybody treated us badly or because we were bitter. I loved being an Adventist. But when I saw that Adventism contradicts the Bible, that Adventism contradicts the doctrines of the gospel of the apostles of the Lord Jesus himself, I couldn't stay. I knew I would betray Jesus if I stayed. I'm going to read what Jesus actually said in John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Scripture tells us that we are all born dead, spiritually dead. Our true, literal, immaterial spirits are born dead in sin. Children of wrath by nature, Ephesians 2 verse 3. When Jesus convicts us of who he is, when he shows us the gospel of our salvation and we believe, we are born again at that moment and we pass out of death into life, and nothing can take us out of the Father's hands or out of Jesus' hands. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and He is a guarantee that our eternal security is certain. And that gospel of our salvation 
is so clear. It has nothing to do with keeping the law. It has nothing to do with remembering to confess every sin. It has to do with repenting, with looking at Jesus hanging on the cross who became sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. When we see him becoming sin for us and we realize that we are by nature children of wrath, we have no option but to bow at the foot of that cross and to confess, I need to be saved. I need life. I'm dead. And when we trust that what Jesus did paid the price, propitiated for our sin, and is the one eternal sacrifice that is for our sin, He makes us alive. He died for our sins, according to Scripture. He was buried, and He was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. And when we believe, we pass from death to life. There is no investigative judgment. There is no probation. We are either dead or alive. We are either not in Christ or in Christ. And if you don't know on which side of that equation you're on, you likely need to kneel in front of the cross of Christ and repent and trust His finished work. We can know we're saved. His atonement is complete, and He lives forever. His blood, the eternal guarantee of our eternal security. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view our online articles and sign up for our weekly emails containing ministry news. You can like us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we look at Fundamental Belief 25, The Second Coming of Christ. See you then.